Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Former Senator Jeff Flake, a Republican from Arizona, has been a critic of President Trump since before the 2016 election. Two years later, Flake decided not to run for re-election to his own Senate seat. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, he discusses his reservations about the president and hopes for the future of his party. Former Senator Jeff Flake, uh, good to see you again. Great to be here. Um, and where am I reaching you? Where are you uh, hopefully staying safe? I'm actually in Utah this week uh, doing some teaching at BYU. I'll be back in Arizona next week through the election. Senator, how did you get into politics? I, I think if I remember correctly, you come from a family that had some politics in the background. But but were you preordained for this? Were you, uh, were you a 12-year-old kid consuming every bit of politics you could? No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, my father was the mayor of Snowflake, a town where I was raised, but that kind of came by rotation. <laughs> and, uh, and get this, my uncle Jake Flake from Snowflake uh, was Speaker of the House in Arizona. So being a flake from Arizona, you, you can survive that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so there's there's some history, but but not much. And what did it feel like the first time someone called you Senator? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, our first grandson uh, was not yet born. He was pregnant and people were were asking all the time, you know, what's he going to call you? Is it going to be grandpa or is it Nana or Papa, you know, for my wife and me? And I was going through a tough, tough campaign during that time. And I said, hey, if I, if I get through this, that kid's going to call me Senator. <laughs> because <laughs> this is not easy. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's still tough to get used to. Uh, my staff, it was all Jeff. Uh, a little hard to get used to. <laughs> and what would have happened if you hadn't gotten into politics or if you'd gotten in but you hadn't done well? What do you think you would have done uh, career-wise? Foreign service. Um, I, the foreign service, definitely. I, uh, I spent a lot of time around them. Um, and when we were in Namibia, long before I was in Congress, 10 years before, uh, you know, we were kind of the token Americans in the country. Um, but I've seen and, and have had responsibility, you know, over Africa 
in the Africa Subcommittee and uh, traveled extensively and uh, met uh, with a lot of uh, Foreign Service officers, ambassadors, consul generals, and um, admire them greatly. And uh, that's, you know, it's a tough life for a family, but, uh, but boy, it would have been rewarding. And we need good people in those positions, so particularly now. You, um, if, if not Africa, what other part of the world would you have enjoyed a rotation in if you had gone into Foreign Service? Cuba, <laughs> uh, South America, anywhere, uh, far-flung islands, uh, Southeast Asia, um, you know, remote parts, what I like. Did you ever meet uh, Castro by any chance? You know, I didn't. I, I had many opportunities. In fact, uh, uh, one time when I was down there, he, he sent for me uh, at the hotel, and I never wanted people to think that I was going down to Cuba to, you know, for this kind of weird kind of idol worship or something, and uh, so I would never meet with him. Uh, but one time I, I sent my wife, and she met with him. <laughs> after, uh, after that four or five hour meeting, she came out and said, now I know why you won't meet with him. <laughs> so, so, I, <laughs> so, so I never did. Uh, I just uh, didn't want uh, people to think that that's why I wanted to, you know, renew ties and to have uh, unfettered travel to Cuba. So, so I didn't do it. What were you doing down in, in Cuba? You're talking to a kid who grew up in Miami, and so obviously Cuba loomed large over, uh, over all things. What, what did draw you down to Cuba? What were you doing down there? Well, I, I, from my first day in Congress, I was trying to lift the travel ban uh, and allow Americans to travel. I always thought that uh, if you want to get rid of the Castro brothers, make them deal with spring break once or twice. I mean, that's, that's the, the way you do it. Uh, <laughs> And I could never understand, particularly as a Republican, you know, we preach the gospel of travel and commerce and trade and, and contact as a way to nudge countries toward democracy. Yet with Cuba, we said, no, it's not going to work there. And uh, so I've, I passed legislation a couple of times, uh, just couldn't get President Bush to sign it to lift the travel ban. Um, so I, I traveled down uh, there frequently. And the last time, the, the, uh, the shortest trip I had to Cuba was... Uh, was the best. Uh, that one, I, I was sent down by the Obama administration with Pat Leahy, the Democrat from Vermont, uh, to uh, do a prisoner swap or a spy swap. This was in uh, December of 2014. Um, he had been in prison in Havana for five years and we couldn't move our policy anymore until he was released. And I'd been down to visit him in prison and uh, just couldn't get the Cuban government to let him go and the Obama administration, uh, you know, negotiated a spy swap. And uh, so we flew down and uh, were there for 31 minutes exactly on the ground, met with the, the foreign minister, got Alan Gross and got on the plane and, uh, and brought him home. And that was, people ask, what was your best memory of Congress? What was the best thing was definitely, uh, you know, 30 minutes into the flight when our pilot came on and said, uh, We've entered U.S. airspace, and uh, that was, you know, when Alan Gross stood up and shook his fists in the air and just breathed in and out several times, uh, said, now I know I'm free, and it was just an uh, incredible time. So, so, yeah, I've traveled down there a lot, and some of the gains that we made have been reversed by the administration, this administration, but uh, I think we'll get back. Did you look closely at running for president in 2016? Were you, were you thinking about that in any serious way? 
Oh, not in 16 at all. Um, no, uh, there, there was a, a big field. Uh, I didn't think that Donald Trump would emerge at the top. But I'd hope that uh, there'd be many, like 17, <laughs> who, uh, who, would, <laughs> who would best him in the contest. So there was no thought at that time. Uh, in you know, this year, um, there was uh, some encouragement and a little thought, but not much. Uh, this is the president's party, unfortunately. And there's just no no getting around that right now. And have you met uh, have you met with the president uh, with with President Trump one on one at any point? Yes, yeah, I have uh, uh, several times, but not until he had secured the nomination. I, I never did the kind of the pilgrimage to New York to get money from him or get his support before. Uh, his support of birtherism just turned me off so badly that uh, I just could never have supported him. Um, but when he secured the nomination, he came to the Senate and met with Senate Republicans. And, uh, you know, there were all 50, 51 or 52 of us there. And uh, um, he pointed at me at the back of the room and said, you've been very critical of me. <laughs> uh, that was my first contact with him. And I said, yes, I have. I said, by the way, I'm the other senator from Arizona, the one that wasn't captured. And uh, I said, and you have to stop saying these things about John McCain. And then I said, and you also have to say, stop saying the things about Hispanics that you're saying, uh, because you're going to kill the party. And uh, he uh, got angry and told me I was going to lose in November. I reminded him I wasn't up in November. <laughs> um, and uh, he said that he had the support of Sheriff Joe in Arizona and that uh, that's all I needed kind of thing. So that, that meeting didn't go too well. I, I had several meetings after that at the White House. Uh, trying to move him on immigration. We thought that we could get him moved on, you know, DACA, the DREAM Act, uh, because he had expressed support uh, on that issue during his campaign. Uh, but in the end, uh, his advisors and uh, talk radio at night <laughs> just kind of prevented him from doing anything. What do you think you will tell your grandkids one day about why uh, Donald J. Trump became the 45th commander in chief? Like. No one else is around, just you and the grandkids. They know that, and, and, and Papa, they've got a political expert. And what will you say? Why, why did he win? Well, I think uh, Republicans, uh, you know, sometimes uh, parties will tend to support a populist, uh, somebody who will promise things that uh, they can't deliver and to play on people's raw emotions and to play on fear and division and sometimes people give in to that, and, and we did. Uh, now, I, I think it, with realization that uh, it was a bad detour and uh, the party will be back, and it may hopefully be a short detour, uh, but it uh, was significant and it doesn't speak well for us uh, as a party, certainly as Republicans, that we elected him. Would it be reasonable for people who love democracy and who think about civic responsibility to penalize Republicans for a generation or two to say that, that, that if you elevated this man to the presidency and, and you, Senator Flake, among others, say that was a bad decision, that was an unfit decision, and people went through a thoughtful nomination process, so they had lots of chances to rethink that, and they still did it. Would it be reasonable for someone to say, a founding father, to come back now in time and say, hey, you know what? Guys, that's so out of bounds. That was so inappropriate. You guys should be in the penalty box for a generation. Would that be reasonable? 
Yeah, whether it's reasonable or not, that may happen. I, I, I think it's reasonable, but I hope it doesn't happen. I mean, we, for whatever reason, we've given ourselves two parties in this country, and we need two strong, robust, viable parties to debate issues. And when I look at uh, California, uh, that's kind of what happened there. You know, Pete Wilson in the mid 90s, uh, you know, back when California used to routinely elect Republican governors, um, you know, he didn't, couldn't get people very excited about a second term until he latched on to Prop 187, an anti-immigration measure that uh, very much mirrors the kind of rhetoric and policy we see out of the White House today. And it did manage to, you know, gin up the base and get people excited uh, enough to give him a second term. But the, the penalty has been that we have been in that box for now almost a generation. Uh, I think the only Republican elected since that time is uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger statewide, and he switched parties. And then I think an insurance commissioner or something. But it'll likely be a lot longer before California elects statewide another Republican. I fear that that's where our party, the Republican Party, is going. Uh, and that's why I'm, I'm so, uh, so anxious to see uh, Donald Trump lose and for the party to recognize that there's no future with Trumpism. They're just anger and resentment are just not a governing philosophy. Um, you can excite people for an election here or there, but it runs its course. And uh, so I, I think that we're, the country is seeing that now, and hopefully my party is seeing that. Well, what do you say to people who would say to you, and not saying it in a loud, I want to have an argument way, but you can tell they're thoughtful, you can tell they care about these things, they're going through it. And what would you say to someone who said to you, Hey, but to be fair, a lot of this isn't new. I mean, Trump may be doing it in a more, in a louder, more um, entertaining way, but Sheriff Joe and race and race baiting and racism seems to have become a meaningful part of the Republican conversation. Going back, you could argue, to another Arizonan, to Barry Goldwater, and that no one should be surprised and we should stop being polite about it. We should call it what it is because otherwise we'll never fix it if we keep allowing it to, re to lie kind of latent there, waiting for someone like Trump to fully uh, activate it. What would you say to someone who, again, they're not trying to score political points. They're trying to really understand where the country is and where it can go and would say, hey, you know, Jeff, we need you. We need other people of goodwill to actually have a more honest, deeper conversation about race in the Republican Party? Like, what would you what would you say to them? Well, there's always been this element in the party. Um, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, it was the John Birch Society who, who saw a conspiracy everywhere. Fluoride in the drinking water as a form of mind control. Uh, Dwight Eisenhower is somehow a closet communist. Uh, and, and the, the truth is, even you mentioned Goldwater, he and uh, Bill Buckley at that time uh, made a concerted effort to sideline that group and divorce them from the Republican Party. What they said at the time is, we cannot have that emblem of irresponsibility uh, as part of the Republican Party. And they were quite uh, successful in doing that. And Ronald Reagan had to make some of the same efforts to push aside that group. Uh, the historian John Meacham the other day uh, was, was mentioning that kind of phenomenon and saying that, you know, that's, there's always been that 10 or 15 percent of, uh, you know, those who support Republicans who may harbor those kind of feelings. Uh, his his uh, concern, and it is mine too, that that it's a much 
bigger percentage of the party today. Um, he thought maybe upwards of 40%. I don't think uh, it's that. But I, I do think that it's a responsibility of elected officials uh, to, to you know, state strongly that that element should have no place in the party. And, and that has not been the case. Uh, President Trump has been loath to criticize anyone uh, who supports him. And, and he's gonna have to uh, if Republicans are gonna be relevant in the future. Um, or he's gonna have to leave and the party is really gonna have to have a reckoning. So yes, that, there is that element. They're there and, and we need to distance ourselves from them. I should mention that uh, you know, there's a glorious tradition of Republicans supporting Democrats uh, when the Republican uh, who has been nominated is too far out of the mainstream. Um, you know, in, in 1992, David Duke was the Republican nominee for governor in Louisiana. And at that time, George H.W. Bush um, and several Republican senators strongly endorsed the Democrat. It was Edwin Edwards who had his own colorful past having been indicted on criminal charges. Um, in fact, there were bumper stickers going around at that time saying, vote for the crook, it's important. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, Edwin Edwards was elected. Uh, he was gone, you know, a term later or so. Uh, but we didn't have David Duke as the standard bearer of the party in Louisiana. That was important. And uh, today, when we see those elements cropping up, uh, whether it's uh, as part of, of protests or militia groups or, or whatever, we have to call them out. It's the responsibility of uh, elected Republicans to do so. What if someone said, though, that a deeper cleaning is needed, that you're right, that there's a real problem, whether it's 10 to 15 percent or 40 percent or whatever the number is. But clearly there's been an integration of this kind of racist element into the party. And then unless there is a fundamental deep cleaning or kind of really serious reckoning, I'm almost thinking truth and reconciliation, South Africa style, that we're always going to have that and that that's not okay. What if someone kept pushing you? You understand where I'm going, kind of. If someone said, you know, Senator, we need profiles and courage on this. We can't just do this on one-off basis. There's a more systemic problem here. We need a systemic answer. Would you agree with them that there's a systemic problem? Or would you say, no, we can keep doing these one-offs when it's David Duke, when it's, you know, when it's someone else who seems outside of the mainstream? Well, I mean, nothing focuses the mind like a big election loss, and we may be in for that. Um, and if we want to be a relevant, uh, functional party in the future that competes, you know, in the battle of ideas, uh, we've got to rid ourselves of that element. Uh, you know, whether it's five or 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the party, we need to do that. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, I mean, those who are, you know, charged with leadership, those who have been elected, it's their responsibility to, to call these people out and to make certain that uh, they don't want that kind of support, um, that they're not going to rely on that kind of support. That, uh, and and I, I do think that still this country, I, I believe as a conservative, that if given the choice, uh, most Americans will choose the more free market uh, conservative path most of the time. But we've got to compete uh, in the battle of ideas. And right now, it's just uh, you know, a battle of personalities. And are you with the president? And we're not going to get anywhere with that. So, all right. So I want you to play prognosticator uh, uh, for a minute. 
what do you expect is going to happen uh, this fall? And, and then look ahead to me as a result of what you expect to be true over the next couple of years. Who's going to win? Is the president going to win re-election like most of our modern presidents who typically win re-election? Or, you know, is Uncle Joe going to become President Joe? Well, I, I don't know if my predictions are just my preferences. <laughs> so, and I, I will fully admit I was completely wrong in 2016. Uh, but I thought, uh, I thought ever since 2016 that it would be difficult uh, for the president to put together that, that royal flush again in the Electoral College. Uh, even before Corona, uh, before the economy collapsed uh, because of Corona, uh, then it would be difficult. Uh, I think it's uh, virtually impossible now, given the way he's handled the coronavirus and, uh, and his statements. And just, I mean, you can only drill down on the base so hard You've got to broaden your your base and your electorate, and the president has made no effort in doing that. So I do think uh, Joe Biden uh, will win, uh, probably handily. Uh, the real question is the Senate right now. And uh, while Republicans, uh, we don't deserve to keep the Senate, I think given uh, kind of the supine attitude we've taken with regard to presidential authority and what he's done, I hope we do. Um, I, I, I like divided government. And I look, when I look to the future, if Republicans are to become the responsible party again, and if we're going to have governing principles rather than just kind of own the libs kind of thing, it helps to have some power and, uh, and some basis to do that. I'm afraid if we're completely in the wilderness, then we can continue to act irresponsibly. And so I hope that that doesn't happen. But, uh, but right now, if the election were today, I think that uh, Democrats would control both chambers and the White House. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Now, you heard the president uh, seem to not guarantee a peaceful transition if he were to lose. What do you think would really happen in that? I mean, because when I was growing up, they like made movies called war games and things like that about what would happen with a rogue president or a rogue kind of commander in chief. But it was always kind of, you know, uh, it it was also it was always kind of a drama or kind of made up. No one really thought it was going to happen. But now we're at a place like literally, what do you think would happen as someone who's been an inside player, part of the most exclusive club, if the president were to seem to lose, but there be controversy around it and refuse to accept the loss, play it through for us, you know, war game it a little bit. What would actually happen? Well, the president seems to be laying the groundwork, uh, groundwork for a challenge or to place the blame or try to hold on if he doesn't uh, win the election in a genuine way. Uh, I don't put it past the president at all uh, to try that. But in order to be successful at that, he would have to have the institutions of government uh, support him. And and I just don't think they will. (laughs) In fact, I know they won't. Uh, Take the legislative branch. I've been disappointed that, uh, that some of my colleagues haven't stood up at uh, certain times and challenged certain statements of the president. And even now, when he makes these kind of statements, Uh, to more forcefully renounce it. Uh, But I can tell you, uh, there aren't many of my former colleagues. In fact, there are very, very few who want to see him still in office um, if he hasn't won a genuine election. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear of the Republican base that he controls, but there's no love for the president. um, Because uh, when you're elected to the Senate, you aspire to do more than defend the president's tweets or to approve uh, the executive calendar. You, you, you want to legislate. And uh, my colleagues know that Trumpism doesn't have a future. This is a demographic cul-de-sac. Um, and virtually all of them know that. And so he won't have support. And then among the uh, judicial branch, certainly uh, with uh, the courts, uh, you know, there's this popular lore that he's populating the courts who will then come and protect him if he hasn't won a general election, that's baloney. Um, I don't know of one judge, certainly not on the Supreme Court or on any circuit court or any court uh, that would try to keep him in office if he hasn't won a genuine election. 
So I, I don't think the institutions of government will support him. Interesting. And what about the military? What do you think the military would do in that case? Oh, you know, goes without saying, not at all. Not, no, I mean, all the institutions, whether it's the legislative branch, uh, the judicial branch, the courts uh, and the military. No, uh, if he has not won a genuine election, no, nobody's going to stand up and, and try to keep him in office. So I, uh, I, I think uh, if there's worry out there that's misplaced. Now, like I said, I'm not putting it past him to challenge the election. And I do have a concern, you know, how the votes will come in. Uh, he's likely to uh, win a majority of votes on election day, uh, but the vast majority of votes will be cast before election day. And in Arizona, just take uh, my case, um, you know, seven or eight, eight years ago when I was elected to the Senate, uh, midnight on election night, I had a five percentage point lead and my my opponent called and conceded and, and I, I slept well that night. Uh, 24 hours later, as more absentee votes were counted, uh, my five percentage point lead, you know, was whittled down to about three and a half. And my opponent uh, was sorry he called and conceded so soon. We're likely to see that play out uh, in states like Arizona and other states. Uh, uh, Republicans tend to vote more in person and uh, Democrats more uh, absentee ballot or mail-in voting. So I, I do, I am concerned about how this is going to be reported out. And I hope that media outlets and, and everyone is prepared uh, to say, hey, there's election day isn't all of it. Uh, votes will be counted. And it's not that something nefarious is going on or somebody's trying to cook the books later. It's just that that's how the votes are coming in. I am concerned about how that plays out and that might lend itself to, you know, some groups out there saying, hey, it's, it, we're being robbed. Uh, and this narrative has been created already by the president. So uh, it'll be easy for those groups to believe that. What did you think about the situation in Michigan? Did you hear about the, the plot to kidnap Democratic Governor uh, Gretchen Whitmer uh, by some uh, white militia? Men, what, what did you what did you make of that? Yeah, it's just horribly unfortunate, uh, but you know, unfortunately, not isolated. Um, you know, any of us who've, who've been in uh, public office, particularly in the Senate uh, or the House, uh, I mean, I've been out of office now for uh, nearly two years. My wife, uh, you know, counted the days, weeks, months now, over a year with no serious death threats. Um, you know, I've. The person who mailed pipe bombs to several Democrats, uh, when he was caught, they found that he had tweeted out aerial photos of my home in Arizona, uh, saying, you know, your Senator Flake, your home has a lot of entrances. I'll see you soon. Uh, so, I mean, we've had things like that happen quite a bit. I was on the baseball field being shot at. Uh, so it's this is a. It's a toxic time uh, to be in politics. And it's the sad thing is I, I spend a lot of time now um, on university campuses. I'm uh, teaching at two universities right now. And, and uh, um, you know, to try to encourage young people to get into politics, it's a little difficult right now. They see it and say, I don't want any part of it. But we, we need good people to run for public office and to be uh, in government, uh, in public service, whether it's elected office or in some other way. Uh, we, we need it. And so uh, I hope that we can tamp down this fever uh, that, uh, that we're seeing right now. Were you scared at any point when those threats were coming your way? Oh, yeah. You know, it, I, 
You know, in years past, uh, during my first several years in the house, you know, there would be the odd threat here or there, and, and I would just poo-poo it, and uh, some on my staff would get concerned, and I, I would, you know, you know, almost make fun of them or ridicule them. And, I, and then Gabby Giffords got shot. And uh, I remember driving down uh, to Tucson and hearing it reported uh, erroneously that, that she had been killed. And, and then uh, I remember calling some of my staff and apologizing profusely for not taking these threats seriously. Because even if, uh, if, if you survive it, uh, you know, sometimes your staff does not. And uh, fortunately, Gabby Giffords has been able to uh, recover, uh, you know, mostly. And that uh, some of her staff members were killed. And a federal judge was killed in that shooting. And in other you know, areas as well, in the baseball shooting, uh, we had a couple of staff members who were shot and, uh, and barely survived. Uh, so I, you know, it's not just the, the members of Congress uh, or elected officials who are in danger. It's uh, those around them and their families. And I mean, we had death threats uh, sent to my wife, uh, to her cell phone, uh, beheading videos with the names and addresses of our children. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it gets rough out there, um, but, uh, but it'll get better. Uh, I, I'm sure of it. I, I hope, I hope it, I really, really hope it will. I'm, uh, I'm both sorry to hear that. Um, but also, as you say, probably more grateful and appreciative. I hope I always have been grateful, but even more grateful of, of public service. And it, it, I do appreciate you bringing up the point about staff. We so often obviously focus on, um, the principles, but as you said, I think of James Brady, who uh, was uh, um, painfully injured uh, uh, when someone shot at President Reagan years ago. And you're right; people may forget. I don't even want to call it collateral damage, but 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 that that multiple people can be impacted uh, by by a shooting um, or by an attempt. Um, uh, Senator, let me take you to kind of a very different uh, topic. Um, uh, you're Mormon and have grown up in the Mormon faith. Um, uh, I've gotten to know Senator Romney a little bit over the years and really enjoy him. Uh, we've always had uh, good conversations, and he and I have talked a little bit about, in his mind, the role of his faith, both in his life and in his public life and work. How do you think about uh, the state of Mormonism uh, here in the U.S. today? And I know that's a broad and open-ended question, and I don't mean to ask you for treaties, but, but I am just kind of curious to take a snapshot in 2020 and you know, where is what is it to be a Mormon in the U.S. today, good, bad, or otherwise? Well, I, I was fortunate when I got to Congress. You had uh, you know many Mormons who had preceded me there, and uh, not just as Republicans, but Harry Reid, a uh, good uh, member of the church who was a majority leader in the Senate. I didn't often agree with some of his policies, but what a good man and uh, a good example for the church and. And then uh, Mitt Romney, obviously running uh, for president. I think people saw at that time a good and decent man uh, who was Mormon. And, and that really made life easier for a lot of uh, the rest of us who people may have had misimpressions about who we were. And so I've, I've been uh, uh, grateful to follow a lot of people who set good examples. And, uh, and I, I, I see that uh, in a lot of, uh, a lot of faiths. So I'm, I'm proud to, to be Mormon and uh, 
I'm, I'm glad that there are good examples like Mitt Romney and, and others uh, in office. And how has your faith shaped you? I guess I ask you that in part as the grandson of a Baptist minister. And I know that faith does and doesn't play a big role in various people's lives, but has faith been a key uh, shaper of who Jeff Flake is? Has it been a minor player? How has your spirituality uh, played out in your uh, uh, in, in your in yourself and, and who you are today? Well, it has provided a spiritual grounding, and uh, I hope that uh, that I've lived up to it. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a very big part of, of who I am. It's uh, uh, maybe the most important part of who I am, uh, my family and me. So uh, yeah, it means a lot to me. I mean, as far as the, the type of politics I practice as well, uh, I mentioned I grew up in a town called Snowflake, uh, founded by my great-great-grandfather and Erastus Snow, Snowflake. But uh, in the early days of, of the church uh, in Arizona, in the 1800s, uh, the church leadership was concerned that there might be too many uh, Mormons in one party or another. Uh, they wanted, you know, a good debate and uh, then to be represented by both parties. And so uh, in a lot of congregations uh, in the late 1800s, they would go and say, whoever's in the left pews, register Democrat. Whoever's in the right pews, register Republican. Uh, in my town of Snowflake, the demarcation was Main Street. Uh, those living east of Main Street uh, were to register Democrat, <laughs> west of Main Street, Republican. The Flakes lived east of Main Street. And uh, so really, until my father's generation, uh, we registered Democrat. And, and it was an important lesson to me that, you know, that uh, party shouldn't matter as much as a country. Um, and, uh, you know, if there was a partisan gene somewhere in my line, it wasn't passed on to me. So uh, maybe to my political detriment, I just uh, never saw politics that way. I found it hard to, to uh, see the opposition party as the enemy uh, because you, you need to work with them. You, you have to have bipartisanship. And th that example uh, has been brought home to me by uh, many good politicians I admire, uh, both in my faith and not in my faith. What do you think are two or three of the most interesting policy issues uh, out there that you hope will be tackled, whoever wins pres the presidency over the next four years? What, what would you hope would be at the top of the agenda? If you could could organize a constitutional convention, uh, you know, what would you what would you put number one, two, and three? Well, kind of the boring ones, the ones that uh, have no space at all in campaigns. Uh, what are we, what are we going to do with this structural deficit that we have? And I mention that because it affects everything we do. What kind of defense uh, we can have, uh, what we can provide to citizens of this country, how we provide for people's retirement or health care, if we don't get hold of this massive uh, deficit, which is about $3 trillion this year, um, added to a $26 trillion debt, then we're going to be in trouble. And, uh, you know, we've made a couple of attempts over the past uh, you know, several years, the Simpson-Bowles Commission was one. I wish we would have uh, adopted that, would have acted on that somehow. Uh, but that's something that can only happen. I mentioned divided government. Something like that only happens when you have divided government. No one party is going to take that political risk. But that really has to be at or near the top of whatever we do. And then with, uh, with regard to foreign policy, I am very concerned about our status in the world you know, I mentioned my time overseas. That happened to be 
you know, in the 80s and then early 90s when, boy, it was uh, a heady time to be an American abroad. Uh, I was in Namibia the year or the, the week of the, the Namibian elections was the week that the Berlin Wall came down and the world changed. Uh, some even said that, you know, it was the end of history. The West had won. Um, of course, it wasn't. And now my concern is when you look and I spent time in Africa and had responsibility for uh, a lot of countries on the Africa subcommittee that, you know, prior to just a few years ago, they wouldn't see the Chinese model, for example, as anything that they, they ought to follow. Now too many see that as a viable option. And this comes at a time when we're withdrawing and, and that uh, will have consequences uh, for decades and generations to come. Uh, you know, conservatives have always believed in strong American leadership around the globe, not necessarily intervening in every conflict or endless wars, but strong American leadership. And we built uh, so many institutions that have led to prosperity and peace, whether it's security arrangements like NATO uh, or the World Trade Organization to help countries uh, build their economies. And, uh, and, you know, as a conservative, I think we ought to preserve institutions that work. And, and we're, we have some uh, rebuilding to do. Gratefully, I think, uh, you know, four years can be seen as an aberration. And uh, most of the world, I think, will be patient with us. Uh, eight years would be more of a trend, and it's more difficult to reverse. Uh, uh, what will you do if Trump wins, do you think? Um, you know, we just push on. Uh, you, you do the best you can. I, I don't expect that to happen. Uh, but if he does, uh, then try to use whatever platform you have uh, to uh, you know, convince people this isn't the direction we ought to go. Uh, it, it's difficult to convince the president, I think, of anything. Those of us who hope that uh, uh, the office would change the man, um, you know, we were disabused of that notion pretty quickly. And uh, so... I, I don't expect that to happen. And if he does, then I think uh, you'll see down ballot, and we're already seeing, which has been underreported, you know, just since the midterm elections, we've lost, you know, seven governorships, six state chambers, the House of Representatives. We've lost more than 350 legislative seats uh, nationwide. And Republicans, for example, it's likely um, in January, Arizona, for the first time in 72 years, will have two Democrats representing the state in the Senate. Uh, we already have uh, you know, a 6-5 Democrat-Republican congressional split in the state. We will likely lose the state house in Arizona. And this is in a red state, supposedly. So I, I think that uh, you know, the, the politics will change and ultimately um, Republicans will realize uh, there's no future here but it can be uh, painful in the meantime. Would you become a Democrat in that instance, or would you consider starting a third party? No, I don't, I, I'm not a third party guy. I, I think we've, for whatever reason, we've given ourselves two parties in this country, and I can't see becoming a Democrat. I'm a lifelong Republican. I'm a conservative, and the Republican Party has always best represented my views, not completely, uh, but uh, that's been my political home, and I expect it to be. So I would rather uh, seek to uh, bring the Republican Party back um, to the principles that we know 
can animate the party, that can draw people to it. Uh, but boy, for a while now, um, certain groups, I think uh, some minority groups, uh, women, uh, millennials, they've been walking away from the party for a while. Right now, they're in a dead sprint. And, and we've got to reverse that if we want to be viable in the future. Um, you in 2017, I, I like to joke that you you did a full-on Jimmy Stewart. You were kind of Mr. Smith goes to Washington, and you gave this uh, uh, you gave this impassioned speech on the Senate floor uh, about courage, about doing the right thing. What happened after you did that? Did people come up and say, "Hey, Jeff, you did the right thing"? Did people say, "You know, Jeff, bye bye"? You know, that's kind of the end of your career. Like, like what, like what, what happens? Take us inside the club, most exclusive club in the world, the Senate. Like, what happens after you, after you go full Jimmy Stewart on him? Well, a lot of my colleagues on the Republican side and the Democratic side, you know, said uh, nice things afterwards. Uh, some of those on the Republican side were a little more careful of what they said afterwards because right now President Trump controls this party. And if you are up for re-election anytime in the future, uh, certainly at that time, uh, you knew that the president could pick up the phone and generate a primary for you, that you would not survive. And so that, that, uh, that really conditioned a lot of people's response. But, but my colleagues know the score. Uh, they, they, uh, they, they don't like what is happening, I can tell you. Uh, they aspired to do more, like I said, when they became a senator, and they don't think that this is the right direction for the country. Uh, but they're trapped right now uh, uh, by knowing that the president controls uh, the base of the party. Um, so, I mean, I was grateful to be able to still have 15 months uh, after I announced <laughs> that I would retire, not run for re-election, uh, to speak out. And I tried to use every platform I could uh, to talk about the dangers that were coming if we didn't turn around. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly didn't change the president or his policies, but I did what I, I knew was right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. 
We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Another bold thing you did in, in your last two years was around the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings uh, when he was a judge, uh, a nominee to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, things were moving along in terms of the nomination. And then there was a dramatic scene in an elevator in which two women who had survived themselves uh, sexual assault implored you to support uh, hearing from Dr. Uh, Christine Blasey Ford. Uh, and you and maybe one other, I think, ultimately uh, helped facilitate that in the Judiciary Committee. Upon reflection, did you do the right thing uh, in extending that and allowing uh, her testimony? And and even more than that, if you had to do it all over again, would you still have supported Kavanaugh or did you make a mistake? And if you had to do it all over again, should you have opposed Justice Kavanaugh? In terms of the timing, uh, that elevator scene was after we had heard from Dr. Ford, but the committee was ready to move his nomination uh, to the floor without an FBI investigation, without a proper invest investigation. Uh, so I had previously uh, told the leadership that I would not support uh, his nomination uh, if unless we did hear from Dr. Ford. Uh, we heard from her, but I still wasn't satisfied uh, uh, that we hadn't done an investigation. And uh, that scene in the elevator, what I heard from those women was what I had been hearing and many of my colleagues had been hearing from friends and associates and family members and others who had had some kind of experience in their past, uh, women who, who identified uh, with her, not to say that uh, you know, they you know, were, were convinced that she was uh, uh, you know, completely accurate, but they had had some experience and it struck a chord. And I knew that uh, the Senate as an institution uh, we had not done due diligence, and that's why I insisted uh, on an FBI investigation, and it was the right decision to make. Um, you know, when that investigation was completed, there are some who simply, let's face it, some who just wanted to delay it. They just didn't want, uh, you know, Judge Kavanaugh at all, and, and I understood that. 
but I also understood we hadn't done due diligence. I'm glad we had the FBI investigation. Uh, there was talk at that time if he had been uh, nominated or had been confirmed without one, that the House, if the House flipped to Democratic control, which it did, that there might even be impeachment hearings uh, for Judge Kavanaugh. Uh, we don't need to go through that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, but then also you have to recognize as well, you need an investigation, a proper one, to ensure that there is some corroboration for allegations that are made. Because if you don't have that, uh, nobody will ever put their name up for nomination. You know, they won't subject themselves to public service if the mere allegation without corroboration is enough to disqualify someone. And, uh, and I, I think we came dangerously close to imposing that standard. And you just look ahead two years of what would have happened uh, when the allegations came against Joe Biden by Tara Reid. If we would have had the same standard that some wanted to have there, that an allegation, no matter how old, no matter how corroborated or uncorroborated, is enough to disqualify someone. Uh, so I, I think that uh, I did the right thing, and I'd do so again, uh, in particular uh, in this case, to set a precedent. Uh, and, and I should say, with regard to the FBI investigation, those aren't made public. Only those senators uh, who voted on it saw them, or saw that investigation. And I, I wish the entire country could have not that you want to make those public because nobody would subject themselves again to it if the, that kind of investigation was. But I think the country would feel better about where the Senate ended up uh, if they had read that report. I apologize for asking you this uh, to be brief, but in the end, did you believe Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony that she had been assaulted? Yes, no? Um, I, I, I mean, it's tough to believe. And I said on the Senate floor and during that time, when you had uh, a situation where you had two teenagers who both uh, admittedly were drinking at the time, I'm not sure we'll ever know what happened. And, and so I, I don't know, or, or somebody could believe uh, in their heart that this happened and it may not have. We just don't know in this case. But like I said, to set a standard where a mere allegation is enough to disqualify someone um, is, is no standard or precedent that we want to adopt. So uh, I, I did believe that there were uh, sufficient questions about the testimony that, uh, that justified his elevation to the Supreme Court. Uh, what do you think about uh, Amy uh, Coney Barrett? Uh, uh, should her nomination come up either before the election or uh, post-election, but before January, is that the right thing to do, given uh, what happened to uh, Obama's nominee uh, in his last year in office when McConnell and lots of Republicans said, hey, 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 too close, too soon, don't do it? Well, given what we Republicans said in 2016, uh, I, I just don't think it's right to move forward. You know, nine months before an election, we said the next president ought to decide uh, yet six weeks before an election, we say, no, we're going to plow right ahead. We didn't make any distinction in 2016 as to who was in control of the Senate and who was president. We said the president ought to decide. And so I believe Republicans should have waited. Now, having said that, as to the qualifications of Amy uh, Coney Barrett, uh, we confirmed her uh, to her current position in 2017. And that was quite a rough uh, hearing that she had. In fact, uh, one of my 
uh, Democratic colleagues on the Senate uh, questioned her religion, uh, said that her dogma spoke loudly within her. I thought that that was completely out of bounds and went to the Senate floor and, and spoke about it. Um, she is she is a well-qualified nominee. Uh, she may be more conservative than some like, or she may not have the philosophy that uh, some is, but she's qualified for that position. I think she will be confirmed. But if it were up to me uh, as a Republican, I would have waited. If, if, if you were to go back to talk to young Jeff, who's in Namibia, uh, late 80s, uh, and I were able to lay out for him this glorious career that was going to involve a chance to serve in the House, chance to win uh, tough Senate races, uh, a chance to meet presidents, heads of state, etc. What are going to be the two or three things that are going to surprise him the most? I mean, he's a smart guy. He's the son of a, a small town mayor. He's the nephew of a state house speaker. So he's, he's not he's not a rube. He knows he knows a fair amount about politics, but still, I assume some things are going to surprise him. What would you tell him? What's going to surprise him? Uh, once he's actually had a chance to uh, walk that path that you've walked? Uh, well, and the first thing that would surprise him that he would run for public office at all. Um, that kid was, uh, you know, animated by policy, and uh, but had not so much an interest in politics. If I had had an interest in politics and had been astute, uh, I wouldn't have gone and done an internship for a Democratic senator, <laughs> opposed to, you know, it was Dennis DeConcini or John McCain, and I chose the Democrat because he was doing more foreign policy at that time, so I wasn't thinking. So that would have uh, surprised uh, that boy, uh, that he would run at all. Second thing was that he would win, <laughs> and that uh, he would, uh, his first office would be the House of Representatives that he was running for, and that he would uh, secure a seat and, uh, and be able to stay 18 years, and uh, then retire, um, hopefully with his reputation intact, <laughs> and uh, with, uh, you know, still the love of his family. Uh, that's the most important thing. Tell this young fella something else. What have you learned about love uh, in this life, Senator Flake? If you were uh, going back and talking to young people who were just starting off in the game, and be as candid as you feel comfortable, but if, but if someone really wanted to learn a little bit about love, like what have you learned about love that you would share with a young person? Well, I mean, what matters uh, is relationships uh, that you have uh, principally with your family and, and second, uh, with those around you. And what I tell college students or those who are thinking uh, about running for office is that you, you'd, you'd better have a reason. You, you'd, there better be something that you want to change or continue, or end, or, or some real reason that motivates you. Uh, because, uh, you know, being in public office, it is, I mean, being in the Senate, it is the most exclusive club in the world. There are perks. Uh, you do meet with heads of state, travel on Air Force One sometimes. Uh, it is a heady experience. But in the end, uh, there are a lot of sacrifices that are made principally by your family, um, because you aren't always there. And when you have a family with five kids uh, 2,000 miles away from Washington in, in particular, you better have a good reason uh, that you're there. Um, and uh, when that, uh, you know, you see that reason not there anymore, in, in my case, um, I would have liked a second Senate term. Uh, you work hard to get there. And I would have liked to have run for another term. Uh, but I knew that uh, if I were to win a race, I. I felt I could, 
but I would have to change really who I was and uh, say all those principles that I talk so much about, uh, I, don't, I don't believe them anymore. Uh, that conduct that I said was reprehensible um, or reckless, I don't no, no, no longer believe that. And uh, in my case, I knew I would have to stand on a campaign stage with the president and laugh laugh at his jokes, uh, laugh along when he ridiculed my colleagues, and when he said rude things about John McCain or minorities. Um, and I knew I couldn't do that, uh, largely because of the love of my family, <laughs> that I would, uh, you know, there's a, there's a long time after public office, whether I served another term or not, and I would have to live with myself. And uh, I didn't feel I could if I... Uh, if I change my principles. And so I, I would uh, make sure that those who are looking to run for public office have a good reason, uh, more than just wanting to have the title. Uh, and if you do, uh, you, can, uh, you can enjoy it and do good for the country and uh, still have the love of your family. Love that. Um, uh, Senator Flake, as we wrap up, I wanna do a little bit of what I call rapid fire. I'd love to hit you with a half dozen or so things and get your immediate reaction, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, your favorite comedian. <laughs> favorite comedian? Well, <laughs> John Candy was always, <laughs> I mean, back when. I uh, just love the man. I, lo I love the big fellow. He was, uh, he was funny as well. Uh, what's one of your favorite books of all time? Uh, Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. Uh, just an incredible autobiography and very genuine and, and, and real. Biggest mistake you've ever made? <laughs> Biggest mistake? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> playing squash last week and uh, pulling my hamstring <laughs> and having to have surgery this week. <laughs> Maybe that, that's just the most recent. But, uh, oh, I don't know. There are too many to mention. <laughs> I'm still enough of a politician not to go there. <laughs> uh, m most talented natural politician you ever met? Oh, well, uh, <laughs> Lindsey Graham <laughs> has always been, <laughs> uh, in terms of, I served with him in the House and then the Senate, uh, uh, the turn of phrase and comedic uh, timing and, and whatnot, uh, he was tops. I, I haven't agreed where he's been recently, but he's a natural politician. Uh, uh, rival survival, uh, most interesting thing that happened uh, uh, during your uh, television adventures. Well, I did survive for a week on a remote uh, deserted island with a Democrat, uh, Martin Heinrich, Senator from New Mexico. We wanted to prove that a Republican and a Democrat could get along. Uh, we made it just uh, a week with a, just a machete between us. And so most interesting thing is uh, coming back, not one of our colleagues knew that we had gone. Uh, we went on a lot of uh, television shows to talk about the experience, but. Uh, Stephen Colbert probably had the best remark. He ran a clip of us spearing fish or something and said, Flake and Heinrich proved once and for all Republicans and Democrats can get along if death is the only option. So for what it's <laughs> worth, we've proved it empirically. <laughs> but I, I hope that we don't have to take that. such extreme measures as uh, marooning ourselves uh, on a deserted island. Although seeing uh, Schumer and, uh, and McConnell, you know, <laughs> on a deserted island together surviving that, that uh, you know, that has some maybe comedic value if nothing else. That would actually be good to watch. It'd be crazy to see Pelosi and Trump. That might even be crazier, but uh, <laughs> but would be, uh, be interesting to watch that. Um, uh, 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 
If you got a chance uh, uh, to either be a professional athlete or professional musician, what would you choose? No athlete. Uh, no, no question. No question. Play and, professional football. And what sport? Would be phenomenal. Football. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's where it's at. I, I played high school football. I was a mediocre high school athlete, uh, but uh, enjoyed that immensely. But then uh, congressional baseball, I learned to love that sport. And uh, 18 years of it, uh, that was, it still remains one of the best institutions in Congress that promotes bipartisanship. Your favorite athlete? <laughs> favorite athlete? Oh, Bo Jackson. <laughs> I mean, the guy was uh, not just a two-sport athlete. He could have been a three or four sport athlete and be, you know, dominant in all of them. And and your nickname growing up. <laughs> hey, when your last name's Flake, do you really need a nickname? Come on, let's get real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they probably had they probably had good fun with that. <laughs> I said the truth is growing up in Snowflake, I, I never knew that Flake was a pejorative term until I left town. I mean nobody made fun of us there. There were there were too many. So. Well, by the way, what was that like? Like, I grew up in Miami, so, you know, relatively big city. Like, how, how big or how small was Snowflake? Oh, just a few thousand people. Uh, like I said, it was settled by my family, the Flakes and the Snows. But I had you know, 10 brothers and sisters. Uh, I had 69 first cousins on my father's side alone. That's how I got elected. <laughs> that helps. Everybody voted twice. I love that. So I, I have a lot, of, a lot of cousins out there and uh, uh, a lot of support. Wait, now did they stick with you through thick or thin, or did someone tell me that they that they they may have teased you and turned on you at the end? No, I, I have to say it would be a little uncomfortable right now to uh, to ride in the parade in Snowflake on the 24th of July, our celebration there. I, I uh, probably wouldn't chance it right now. Uh, my immediate family, I think, is pretty much with me, but uh, beyond that, it's a, a little sketchy. Will you will you run for president in 2024? Uh, no, I, you have to talk to my wife about that and uh, my kids and, and me. Um, I, I think uh, 18 years in Congress is a pretty good run. Um, I'm not uh, planning on running for another office, but uh, I do hope that uh, that somebody in the Republican Party can help bring the party to back back to where it needs to be. What if Biden came to you and in Lincoln style said, I need a bipartisan cabinet, what role would you like to play? What would you be interested in? How would you want to help him? Uh, obviously, I would want to help uh, any administration, uh, but uh, I, you know, there aren't many cabinet positions that would interest me. Um, I'm, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, but uh, I would never rule out uh, public service uh, in another capacity other than elected office. So we'll see what comes. I, I thought you were going to say UN ambassador or state, given your interest in foreign policy. Oh, those, those obviously, that would be an incredible honor. And uh, they, uh, he has a lot of good choices. Uh, a lot of good people, I'm sure, clamoring for those positions. Hey, finally, um, on the show, we often talk about dreaming fearlessly. And, and we try and think carefully about uh, what it takes, not just to dream fearlessly, but kind of bring those dreams alive. You obviously, at some point in your journey, embraced a pretty big dream of kind of working in politics and serving at the highest levels. What advice could you give to someone else about how to dream fearlessly and bring those dreams alive? Well, take chances. Uh, I mean, it. Uh... You know, I, I didn't think that uh, that I'd be in this position at all. But, you know, the, the 
jobs that I took, uh, the risks that we took. My wife and I moved out to Washington without a job just to do an unpaid intern internship. Um, we were incredibly dumb and naive in terms of uh, you know, the cost and uh, you know, the, the likelihood that we would land the kind of job that we would need. Uh, but I'm glad that we were naive. I'm glad we took the chance. And then to, you know, when we had a one-year-old child to <clears throat> move, move off to Southern Africa, um, you know, before the internet <laughs> and uh, away from family and, and friends, uh, that, was, that was a bit of a risk, but boy, I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. So take risks, particularly when you still can, when you're young and uh, when family obligations or other things uh, don't, don't uh, you know, don't bind you down. Senator, I, uh, I love that. I love your adventurism. Uh, I love your openness. Uh, even though you've been a little bit coy about it, something tells me we haven't seen the last of you in public office. And uh, uh, I'm going to smile and uh, look forward to a follow-up with this conversation next year. It's great to talk to you, Carlos. Thanks for listening to the Carlos Watson Show podcast. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 